Now turn with me in your Bibles uh, for the second last time in this series to 2 Timothy, and we're on chapter 3, verse 14, to chapter 4, verse 5. 2 Timothy, chapter 3, at verse 14. Both these songs we've sung, the psalm and Lord for the years, bring out uh, verses uh, from here or uh, accord with them from the psalm. So, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus." All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, or perhaps a better translation, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill or accomplish your ministry. Well, let's pray. Our Father, tonight our subject is preaching, and we pray that you would help me to be faithful in uh, explaining, in proclaiming, and applying your words. Help us to listen, and help us to heed the vitally important lessons here for church and ministry and we ask these things in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Now, some simple headings on the back of the service sheet. The heart of this letter to Timothy is a description of the Christian leader. And from the beginning of chapter 2 through to chapter 4, verse 5, Paul paints a picture of what a Christian leader is to be like. Tonight, we complete the picture by looking at 3.14 to 4.5. Next Sunday evening, which will be our last study in 2 Timothy, we'll recap on the letter as a whole, as well as studying the last section of the letter from 4.6 to the end. Tonight, though, three simple points, but three profoundly important principles. Profoundly important principles, 
that one might apply to the church across the world, to the church across a country, but primarily to our local church. Hold on to the Word, preach the Word, and accomplish your ministry. Number one, hold on to the Word. Chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. Let me read them again. Follow with me. As for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have been firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and so on. Hold on to the Word. Now, the focus on these verses is clearly on the Word of God. Just look again, verse 14, continue in what you have learned. Verse 15, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Verse 16, all Scripture. Now, why does Paul refer or describe the Word of God in three different ways. Because at this stage, when he writes the letter, the Word of God as we know it, the Bible, was not complete. The Old Testament Scriptures had been written. The New Testament Scriptures were being written. Indeed, this letter Paul is writing to Timothy is part of the New Testament Scriptures. And Paul's reference to the sacred writings in verse 15 is, I think, to the Old Testament Scriptures, his reference to what you, Timothy, have learned and have firmly believed, verse 14, is probably to Paul and the other apostles' testimony, the apostles appointed, commissioned by the Lord Jesus to speak Jesus' words and write them down. Now, I'm persuaded Paul is referring to the Apostle's testimony from his comment at the end of verse 14, knowing from whom you learned it. That is from Paul and the other Apostles. And the reference to all Scripture in verse 16 is, I think, to both. To the Old Testament Scriptures and the Apostle's testimony that would become the New Testament Scriptures, hence all Scripture. The Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments the Word of God written in the Bible. And so it is clear that in these verses, the focus is on the Word of God. And Paul's strong, and it's very strong, his exhortation to Timothy is to hold on to the Word of God. Now, the implication is many are letting loose their grip on the Word of God. And as we've seen in the rest of the letter, Many, including a number of Timothy's fellow leaders in the church in Ephesus, are letting go of the Word of God, turning away from the Word of God. And Paul says, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. There is a real risk that Timothy will let go of the Word, turn away from the Word, he is under considerable pressure to do so. Pressure from the church. Pressure from the culture in Ephesus. And the pull of his own heart. After all, it would be much 
much easier for him if he let go of the word or at least loosened his grip. Much easier. Much easier. Less opposition. Less isolation. Less spiritual warfare. Paul exhorts him and us, hold on, hold fast with a strong grip. Now, in saying that, Paul appeals to Timothy's heritage. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. From me, the Apostle Paul, your father in the faith, your mentor, your companion in ministry. Timothy, that's your heritage. And verse 15, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. Here, Paul is referring to Timothy's family heritage, his mum and his gran. You might remember from the beginning of the letter, chapter 1 and verse 5, I am reminded, Timothy, of your sincere faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Now, I don't think Paul, for a moment, is being sentimental. He's not saying, Timothy, don't let me down. He's not saying, don't let your mum or your granny down. He's not being sentimental for one moment. Rather, he is pointing Timothy to people, Paul himself, Lois and Eunice, who were convinced about the Word of God and who held fast to the Word of God. Let them be your inspiration, Timothy. More than that, though, he is alluding to a time in Timothy's own life when he, Timothy, firmly believed in the Word of God, not just his childhood, but in his adult life, when he accompanied Paul on his missionary journeys, when Paul sent him to Corinth, and when he was appointed as a leader of the church in Ephesus. Timothy, you held on to the Word of God in the past, and there were tough times. There were difficult times when you and I were under pressure, but we held on. We didn't let go, and God proved His Word to be true. It sustained us. It changed people's lives. Timothy, look to your heritage. Look to your life to this point, and don't let go. Now, what about our heritage? Let me come at it a different way. We are living in a time when it's tough to be committed to the Word of God. Everywhere people are letting go, uh, giving in or loosening their grip. We might even say we can understand and sympathize because the pressure is real. Giving in under pressure from the culture and the church, loosening our grip, letting go of the Word of God. Now, read some church history. That's why it's really important that we know what happened in the past. Times when the church under pressure lost confidence in the Word of God and lost its grip or its hold. Now, at first, and for a time, maybe a decade or two or more, it looked like it was the right thing to do. Less opposition, an easier hearing, church growth, 
But very quickly the error was clear. Churches declining, shutting, no power, no gospel. And what happens then? There is a recovery in commitment to the Word of God. Churches start getting a grip on the Word of God again, and there is spiritual recovery. But that whole cycle of letting go and recovering a hold on the Word can take a generation, multiple generations. And what a pointless, fruitless cycle. And let's not fall into that trap again just because we happen to be living in a tough time. Hold on to the Word. Never let go. Think of Chalmers as a church. As we look to our heritage, our recent heritage, has the Word of God not proved to be true? Has the Word of God not sustained us and kept us? Never let go. Hold on to the Word now. Hold on to the Word in 10 years' time. Hold on to the Word in 20 years' time. Never let go. Now let's just pause there for a little uh, time out. What does it look like to let go of the Word of God? Now let's not caricature this. We're not talking about wholesale rejection. The danger we face is drift or the loss of a cutting edge. There's that little bit in chapter 2 when Paul exhorts Timothy to cut straight with the Word of God. How do you lose a cutting edge? You take repentance out of the gospel or at least an emphasis on it. You take the emphasis on wrath or judgment out of the cross. You take an emphasis on eternity and standing before the person of Jesus as our judge. Maybe it's silence or compromise on Christian morality. Could be lots of things. It never starts with a lurch. It starts with a step. Remember that game? Did you play it as kids? Tic-tac? You know, when you choose your... I always use these illustrations and you look so blankly at me that no one ever played tic-tac. Did anyone play tic-tac? When you choose your teams and, and you put one foot in front of the other, jammed up against the other. That's the kind of steps you take when you let go of the Word of God. Tiny steps. And then bigger steps. And then bigger steps. Hold on to the Word by remembering your heritage, but also hold on to the Word because of what you know about the Word of God. And in these few verses, 14 to 17, Paul gives us some really solid, helpful stuff here. Here are four facts from these verses about the Word of God, what we know about it such that we will hold on to it. First, it is inspired by God. Kath reminded us of these words. We sung them. Verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out. That's what inspired means, breathed out by God. All Scripture, the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, the Bible, is breathed out by God. Now, what does divine inspiration mean? The books of the Bible have human authors. 
But these human authors are divinely inspired. God inspired what they wrote. Therefore, the Bible is God's words, which is why we refer to the Bible as God's word or Jesus' word. Now, divine inspiration is a big subject, and we cannot do it justice here. Let me say to you what my top three reasons are for being convinced of the divine inspiration of Scripture as someone who's been at ministry for 25 years. Number one, the coherence of the Bible, that it all fits together. That just cannot be explained other than by divine inspiration. Number two, the prophecies in the Bible. I spent the last 24 hours teaching Daniel we finished this morning on that wonderful chapter 7. In my vision I looked, and behold, I saw one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven, and he was led into the presence of the Ancient of Days, and he was given authority, power, and dominion. And Jesus stands up in the Gospels and says, I am the Son of Man. Now, unless somebody constructed an enormous scam with a book like Daniel, that has to be inspired by God. Number three, the impact of the Bible. It has changed the course of history. It is still changing the course of history. Some of you will have read about the new silk roads that are to be opened up, or the old silk roads to be opened up as new silk roads to, to spread the, the power of China throughout the globe again. What an impact economically that will have, but what an impact spiritually the Bible, this book, is having. And it changes people's lives. It still is. Now, if the Bible is inspired by God, God's Word with His divine authority, then nothing else is. Now, that's not a provocative statement. It's a profoundly reassuring statement which takes us to the second fact about the Word of God. It is all we need. All we need in the sense of everything we need. This is what people call the sufficiency of Scripture. I haven't used the term sufficiency because we might misunderstand it. Sufficiency sounds like enough to get by on if you can't get anything better. It doesn't mean that, though. It means it's all we need. It's everything we need. Now, where does Paul say this in these verses? He says it in lots of other places in the New Testament, but where does he say it is all we need in these verses? Well, he says it in verse 17. Just look there, 
In fact, let's read in from verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Let me give you a different translation of that, I think a better one, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The believer is, the Bible is all the believer needs to be thoroughly equipped, to be competent. And this is so important. We don't need to look anywhere else. We don't need to listen for God to speak to us in other ways. He applies the Word when He speaks to us individually. But we don't need to listen for Him to speak in ways that are not in the Bible. He speaks to us through His Word. It is all that we need. It is everything we need. And that is such a wonderful, wonderful thing. Let me say that to you with all my heart as a Christian minister, how good and gracious our God is to give us the reassurance and the confidence His Word is all we need. I find that massively encouraging. It is inspired. It is all we need. It saves, verse 15, it is able to make you wise for salvation. The Word of God saves because it explains the gospel which saves. Notice how Paul makes this point by reminding Timothy of the fact that the Word saved Timothy. It saved and it sanctifies. In other words, it transforms us as Christians. The Word of God is not just for evangelism. It is for Christians so they can be sanctified transformed, made more like the Lord Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, that's the end of point one. Let me just encourage you. That is such a vitally important principle for the times in which we live. Hold on to the Word of God. Hold on, and if it helps you, hold on to your heritage. Look at the history of the church. When it loosed its grip on the Word of God, the church spirals into decline. Not perhaps immediately. And then it recovers its commitment to the Word of God, but a whole generation is lost. I'm not sure Scotland could endure that. Hold on to the Word of God. Think of your own life, your own heritage, how the Word of God has proved itself to be inspired in your life and in your church's life. And hold on to what you know. Not what you feel when you speak God's words. Not what you see. Not the churches in the world that are bursting to overflowing. 
Hold on to what you know about the Word. It is inspired by God. It is all we need. You don't need to search elsewhere. It saves people. And it changes people. Now, these are timely verses for our time. Second, preach the word. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Now, you should be cautious, I warn you now, when a preacher or a Bible study leader says emphatically, this is the most important verse in the Bible This is the most important section in the letter. If I were you, I'd be thinking, how do they know? It's just their opinion. What's their agenda? They're just saying that because that's what they want to tell me. It's good to ask these questions. It's good to go back to the preacher and say, if you say this is the most important bit in the letter, does the author say that? That's what matters because the author ultimately is God. Then I'd sit up and listen If the author says that, I want to suggest to us that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Just look at verses 1 and 2. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, just think of getting every preacher in this room, Roger and Johnny and Scott and Neil and Others of you, Joe, others of you preaching up here and stand in front of the Lord Jesus who inspired these words, who says to us, I charge you, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom preach the word. Paul could not raise the stakes any higher. And if Jesus is the inspiration behind this, Jesus could not raise the stakes any higher. Timothy, I charge you, not I commend to you, not I encourage you, not even I strongly encourage you, I charge you. I, Paul, one of Jesus' apostles, solemnly charge you. And Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Paul ramps up the stakes by including God and Jesus in the charge. Timothy, God and Jesus are witnesses now to this charge. And the Lord Jesus will judge you for what you do when he appears at the end of time and his kingdom comes in its fullness. Timothy, Jesus will hold you to account for your obedience to this charge. And if that makes you quake in your shoes, it's meant to. We've just been warmed in our hearts by the fact that the Word of God is all we need, is inspired, saves, sanctifies. But now the charge. To Timothy is the last letter the apostle wrote before his death. The contents of this letter are the last things he wants to say. Paul writes to Timothy, the leader of the church in Ephesus, his son in the faith. Paul writes at the time of succession, from the age of the apostles to the first generation of Christian ministers or leaders. Timothy is a first generation Christian minister. What Paul writes to Timothy is true for every Christian minister or leader since. The last words 
in the last letter of the Apostle Paul that are exhortational words or instruction to the church of God in history. Preach the word. Why? Because the Lord Jesus tells us to. Two, it is to follow his example. His priority was preaching. This is what he, he said, let us go to the nearby towns and villages so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. Not the only thing, but the most important thing. Preaching is Jesus' priority. It is the apostles' priority. He commissioned and sent them out to preach, and it is the priority for the first generation and every generation of Christian minister and leader. I give you this charge, preach the word. What is preaching? It is the public proclamation. It's what I'm doing now. Speaking the word of God when a church is gathered. Exactly what we are doing now. Why not dispense with preaching in our services? Why not gather around tables and have discussions instead? Because that is to disobey the command and the charge to preach. Preaching is how Jesus rules his church, every local church. Preaching is how Jesus leads his people. Preaching is how Jesus shepherds his people, how he cares for them, how he feeds them, how he protects them, how he calls them back when they stray. Preaching is how Jesus equips his church. It is a catalyst to enable people to serve, to use their gifts in the body of the church. It is a catalyst to people teaching the Bible in other contexts through the life of a church. It is a catalyst in a church family to enable them to speak the truth in love to one another. Preaching is how Jesus equips his church. Preaching is how Jesus calls people to faith, how they are brought under the conviction of sin and moved to trust in Jesus and his saving death for the forgiveness of their sins. We place a lot of emphasis on personal evangelism, and rightly so. Every Christian is called to speak the gospel. But listening to preaching is often how people come to faith. Now, this comment about personal evangelism is a helpful point to say that preaching the Word, if you're thinking this, you're right, is not the only form of Word ministry in a church. Of course it's not. The Bible is taught in lots of different contexts by lots of different people in the life of a church. Small groups are a good example. As elders, we encourage people to come to a service on a Sunday where they hear the Word preached and to be part of a small group where they study the Bible together. But preaching remains central. It is the preaching that sets the tone. It is the preaching that is the catalyst to release the Word through the life of a church. The charge is to preach what? The Word. That means the Bible not to add to what is written in the Bible, nor to subtract from what is written. Not Bible plus, not Bible minus. We are to preach no more and no less than what has been inspired. Why? Because I want to hear 
on a Sunday, Jesus. I want to hear what he says. I want to hear inspired words. What we need and says and sanctifies so it makes no sense to preach anything else. Paul says, preach the word. When we preach the word in the Bible, we preach Jesus' words. I think that's why preaching is declaratory, not discursive. Monologue, not dialogue. It's proclamation because we come to hear Jesus speak. And if the preacher goes offline and preaches more than the Bible says or less than the Bible says, that's not proclamation, it's pontification. You do not need to hear me nor Roger on a Sunday. I do not need to hear myself. We need to hear Jesus. It is His voice we need to hear. It might not be what we want to hear, but it's what we need to hear at a human level. Therefore, preaching is monologue. I speak, you listen, but a supernatural level as the Spirit of Jesus works with the Word of God and stirs up our hearts. Preaching is silent dialogue between Christ, the shepherd, and a saint, a soul, one of his flock. That's what people are getting at when they say to a preacher, you spoke right into my situation. That's exactly what I needed to hear. That's not us, it's the Lord Jesus. In His Spirit, speaking to you, engaging you in dialogue, such that you sometimes even feel when you're listening to preaching that you are having a conversation with Jesus. So, here's a good question. Why have us in the way? Why have a sinful man? And if only you knew how sinful and how hypocritical this man is. Why have a sinful man behind the lectern cluttering up the clear and powerful voice of Jesus? Why on earth has Jesus determined it in that way? I mean, would it not make sense to miss out the person behind the lectern with all their annoying habits and their phrases and just their general sinfulness? Well, there is the point. Somebody has famously said that preaching is true through personality. That does not mean a preacher's giftedness or personality traits like enthusiasm, style, and voice, all of which are important. It means truth through a personality, a person whose life has been transformed by the Lord Jesus. It means truth through a person whose life that week as they have prepared that sermon has been affected by Jesus' words. A preacher who has been deeply affected by the word by the Lord Jesus will preach in a way that engages your affections, your heart response to the word of God and the Lord Jesus. Now, if I come across tonight as persuasive that holding on to the word and holding out the word is necessary, I want to ask you to make the choice. Is that my exhortational technique? Or is it because my heart as a preacher, looking at the landscape of this country and this church, is burdened that we need to hold on to the Word and hold it out? Which is why preaching is focused through pastor-teachers 
in local churches, podcasts and conferences and conventions are important. And God greatly uses people on these platforms. But the platform at the front line is an ordinary preacher standing behind a makeshift lectern on an ordinary stage in a local church. Because that preacher is the pastor to that church. And as the shepherd Jesus speaks through his word and loves his sheep, he puts under shepherds behind lecterns to preach to people they care for as under shepherds. The preachers God uses to call dying men and women are preachers who are the shepherds of these dying men and women who know them and love them. Now, we've run out of time. The last thing I want to say about preaching is about method. What do you actually do? People write books about that. People write lots of books about that. Let me see if I can cut out all the jargon and give you the answer. What do you do when you're preaching? Your starting point is that the Bible is God's Word. He inspired it, and what you do is you preach it in the way that He inspired it, so you unpack and apply the truths in God's Word in a way that God has chosen to reveal them, which is why we often preach through Bible books, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, not always. Sometimes we preach thematically, but the norm is systematically preaching God's Word. Why? Because that's how God inspired it. That's how He gave us it. And we want people to have their Bibles open so they can see that's what the Word of God says. When you do that, God sets the agenda, not the preacher. And the preaching is varied and rich because the Bible is varied and rich. Preach the Word, verse 2, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Just notice these uh, uh, words, reproving, rebuking, exhorting, encouraging, teaching. That little list is helpful when people say that real preaching is proclamation or explanation. Real preaching is proclamation and explanation. It's both and. A lot of time, you're patiently explaining, patiently persuading, teaching, then you exhort and encourage. Someone has said that explanation without proclamation is dull, while proclamation without explanation is exhausting. How do you get the balance right? You preach the Word as God inspired it. Preach the Word. It is always hard to preach, but it's especially hard in tough times for the church which is why Paul says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Preach it when preaching is in vogue and when it is not. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why do we need a strong charge? Preach the word. Why do we need endless, endless patience for the time is coming? And I think it's well and truly arrived in Scotland when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Why is it so hard to preach the Word? Because people don't want to listen. Now be careful. They might love to listen to preaching, but they don't want to listen to people who preach the Word. And they vote with their feet. You know, we preachers are vulnerable. You can vote with your feet. You don't need to come back next Sunday. I do. 
They vote with their feet and they go somewhere else where people will scratch their itching ears with preaching that is less than or more than the Word of God. And it's so dangerous and so perilous because nothing other than God's inspired Word save and change us. There will be truth in it, but not the cutting straight with the Word of God that cuts to the heart you might enjoy that kind of preaching, but you will not be convicted by it or convinced by it. And when you draw all this together, what are you looking for in a preacher? Well, remember the picture of the Christian leader in 2 Timothy chapter 2. You're looking in a preacher for a dedicated soldier willing to engage in battle, always looking to please their commanding officer. The preacher of the Word needs to be dedicated. If they preach the Word, they will constantly be on the battlefield and they preach the Word because it is the commanding officer, Jesus' words. You need an athlete who trains, perseveres, plays according to the rules. The preacher who trains, grasps, perseveres, doesn't cheat, doesn't cut corners, doesn't add, doesn't subtract from the Word. You need a hard-working farmer. You need a worker who cuts straight with the Word. You need a pure vessel, godliness for the preacher, so the sinful man behind the lectern is deeply affected in his soul by the words he speaks. And you need a servant who is gracious and patient and loving. So preachers and charmers and redeemer keep the main thing the main thing. And that's down to us as preachers. When all manner of things compete for our time and attention, keep the main thing the main thing. And to you all, hold us accountable. Because people's lives matter. Hold on to the Word. Hold out the Word. And no time for the last point. Let me just finish with the first phrase. We'll come back to this next week. Always be sober-minded to the preacher and to the congregation. Keep your head when everyone else is losing theirs. And what comes next? Endure suffering. Which is precisely why people let go of their grip on the Word of God and do not preach the Word of God. Let's never let go Let's pray. Our Father, there are fireworks going off outside and there are fireworks in this passage of Scripture. Help us, Lord, as a church here and in Redeemer, never to let go of the Word of God and to preach that Word and let the preaching in these churches be that which equips and is a catalyst for all else that goes on in the life of the church. Hold us accountable, Lord, to faithful and true preaching. And may that be seen more and more throughout this land. For Christ's sake. Amen.